as I think most of you know who have tuned in at all, uh, we have been spending the last number of weeks going over various objections that, uh, that people will bring up to uh, all sorts of issues pertaining to the Christian faith. And so the first week we we dealt with the question of whether it's uh, irrational to have faith at all. And of course, we said no, that it all depends on what object the faith is placed in. Uh, the next week, we looked, um, oh, what do we do the next week? Oh, whether the miraculous uh, was rational to believe in or not. And we at least tried to make a case that to simply believe that miracles are possible is not irrational in and of itself. Uh, with all of the inexplicable sorts of things that we come across in the universe from day to day. Uh, and, then the la and then last week we talked about um, the discipline of history and whether we can believe anything, any claims uh, from history are true, since of course often it is the case that history is written by the winners, and so how do we know and how do we sift through what's true from false? And so we actually just went over the historical method to try and uh, determine you know, the, the valid from the invalid. And, and so now that we've sort of dealt with, I think, very foundational, very presuppositional, I'm sorry to use a big word, it just means things that we presuppose to be true when it comes to discussions about God, um, when it comes to thinking about whether it's rational to believe in a God, now we can actually start to uh, at least uh, deal with that specific issue. And so today we're we're going to do that by looking at well, five clues that would suggest that a God exists. Now, uh, I say that very purposefully because I'm not making the case today for the Christian God necessarily. I'm just making a case, or at least discussing the possibility that a God exists and why it's not irrational to believe such a thing. So that's my goal here today. I do have to give a shout out right at the beginning here to uh, one of the people that, that mentored me, and that's um, Pastor Tim Keller, or Dr. Tim Keller in New York City, uh, especially for his book, The Reason for God. If you want to dive deeper into some of the things I'm talking about here today, um, then you're going to want to check out that book. It's a very, very good primer on the reasons for God. It says it in the title. So so what are some of those reasons? What are, what are things that we can look at that would lead us to believe it's rational that a God exists? Well, I've got five clues I want to share with you today real briefly. Uh, first of all, we have the creation clue, otherwise known as the cosmological argument. Here's the structure of the argument. The universe had a beginning. Anything that has a beginning must have been caused by something else. Therefore, the universe was caused by something else, and this cause is God. That's the structure of the argument, known historically as the cosmological argument. It's been employed for uh, centuries and centuries and centuries, certainly not only by Christians, but by all people that would simply make the case that a God exists. Now, it does so happen that we have, we have, a good, we have very good reason to believe that the universe had a beginning because we still find radiation from whatever scientists refer to as the Big Bang moving in a specific direction, expanding. Uh, and it was based on data like this that led Stephen Hawking at one time uh, to say almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Um, Norman Geisler, an apologist, says the main evidence for the universe having a beginning is the second law of thermodynamics, which says the universe is running out of usable energy. What is winding down must have been wound up. So, in other words, since there is a beginning to this, 
There must have been a beginner. Now, someone will say, well, then who created God? But then we get into philosophical difficulty because you're really asking the question um, that can't be answered. Um, and, and here's why, because really what you're doing is just an infinite regression. It never ends because you're always going to be asking, well, who created this and who created that and who created this and who created that? Well, it, what we say is that God is the uncreated being who then brings into existence all things that were created. So a couple objections to this uh, particular clue. Uh, one, for a long time, many people said the universe is eternal. It had no beginning. Again, not really a shred of proof for that view at all. It was just sort of a philosophically assumed position, and now it's kind of been debunked. Uh, number two, well, the objection could be this doesn't prove the Christian God at all. And I will freely admit that. You are correct. It does not show the Christian God to be the God. All it does is show that it's more likely there is a God than no God at all. Well, then you could say, well, the universe could have formed into that which sustains life by complete random chance. Although, um, philosophically possible, uh, technically possible, it is, I can't stress these words enough. If I was writing them down, it would be in all caps, highly, highly unlikely. And here's why, which leads to the second clue. And that is the design clue or the teleological argument. Here's the structure of the argument. All designs imply a designer. There is great design in the universe. Therefore, there must be a great designer of the universe. Some of you are familiar with William Paley's famous watch uh, illustration. Very simple. Back in the day, he says, imagine you're walking along on a beach, and all of a sudden you see in the midst of the sand uh, a watch laying there that's fully functioning. You would naturally assume, just by deduction, that that watch wasn't created merely out of the sand, but you would conclude that it was created by an intelligent being, by an intelligent cause, that it wasn't just random, that it didn't just pop up out of the atmosphere. That's sort of the, the idea with the universe. The universe has incredible design to it, and so it doesn't really make sense to hold that randomness and chaos could bring all this order into being. Uh, Francis Collins, the head of the Genome, Human Genome Project and now director of the National Institutes of Health, writes this. When you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, etc., etc., that have very precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, stars, planets, or people. End quote. Nowhere do we see this complexity of the universe actually more than maybe in our own bodies, in our own DNA. Uh, Norman Geisler writes this, A single DNA molecule, the building block of all life, carries the same amount of information as one volume of an encyclopedia. No one seeing an encyclopedia lying in the forest would hesitate to think that it had an intelligent cause. So, when we find a living creature composed of millions of DNA-based cells, we ought to assume that it likewise has an intelligent cause. It was these fairly modern discoveries about the absolute, utter complexity of DNA uh, that led to the conversion of Anthony Flew, a very, very famed atheist, 
uh, to becoming a theist. I not to my knowledge, I don't think he became a Christian, but he did become a believer in some sort of divine being because he just said it was too complex to explain any other way. Now, objection to that could be something like this. Richard Dawkins has said, well, there could be millions and millions of universes. Eventually, one of them had to result in a place habitable for life. But if you look at the statistical possibility of that, well, it's basically not statistically possible for that to have taken place. The other objection that has been thrown out there is that, well, alien life from another universe could have started this planet. But that really doesn't answer the question because that just brings you back to the first thing, the first argument, which is who caused the aliens? So, okay, theoretically, aliens seeded this planet. Somebody had to have created them or else we fall into the trap of the infinite regression again. Third clue for the existence of God is the what I call the glue clue, or in other words, the regularity of nature. Uh, the argument goes like this. All things hold together. There must be something holding these things together. That thing is what we call God. Uh, scientists and philosophers have troubled themselves greatly seeking to figure out what exactly accounts for the universe staying together. I mean, how do we account for gravity always being there from day to day? Why is it that one day we have it and the next day we don't? There's no, we don't know the answers to that question. There, as a matter of fact, this probably, this issue probably troubled the, the most famous atheist in history, David Hume, the, the most. He just couldn't account for if this was a world that was complete random, completely random and completely chaotic, if the universe was had no sort of guiding principle, nothing, nothing holding it together, he didn't have a, a reason for why it should hold together, why we could predict that from day to day, indeed, gravity will still be here. Nevertheless, it is. And what accounts for that? Well, the scriptures actually say God is the one that holds all these things together, that God is in the midst of all that's been created to keep things from exploding and falling apart. If we were in a random and chaotic universe, we'd have no expectation other than to assume things would eventually explode and fall apart. Just needed a little sip of coffee to keep me going here. Uh, number four, the fourth clue. Uh, so what I might call the beauty clue or an argument from desire. Here's the argument. If everything were just chaos and random, beauty and meaning is not truly possible. Beauty and meaning exist. Therefore, a purposeful being exists. Beauty and meaning lead us to desire, so to speak. They also lead us to desire for what isn't there. We long for something that we, we feel should be there. C.S. Lewis explained it like this. A man's physical hunger does not prove that man will get any bread. He may die of starvation on a raft in the Atlantic, but surely a man's hunger does prove that he comes of a race which repairs its body by eating and inhabits a world where eatable substances exist. In the same way, Lewis being humble here says, though I do not believe, I wish I did, that my desire for paradise proves that I shall enjoy it, I think it a pretty good indication that such a thing exists and that some men will. A man may love a woman and not win her, but it would be, would be very odd if the phenomenon called falling in love occurred in a sexless world. When we see art or hear beautiful music or watch a film or a play, there is something in the universe that seems to have deeper significance and meaning. You see filmmakers that are not particularly religious wrestling with this reality 
all the time in their films. You'll hear stories and playwrights and authors wrestling with this all the time in their books. Leonard Bernstein, not a particularly religious man, in many ways probably the opposite, still when thinking about beautiful music, couldn't help but think of it in terms of something beyond this world. Uh, he, he wrote this, Beethoven turned out pieces of breathtaking rightness. Rightness, that's the word. When you get the feeling that whatever note succeeds the last is the only possible note that can rightly happen at that instant. In that context, then chances are you are listening to Beethoven. Melodies, fugues, rhythms, leave them to the Tchaikovsky's and the Hindemiths and the Ravels. Our boy Beethoven has the real goods, the stuff from heaven. The power to make you feel at the finish, something is right in the world. There is something that checks throughout, that follows its own law consistently, something we can trust that will never let us down. Wow, that, that kind of rhapsodic language uh, for a man who was not in any way known as a religious fella. Nevertheless, the beauty of the music had led him to long for something that goes beyond this world. Now, the objection is, of course, this does not prove that God exists at all. Having a desire for something perfect and beautiful and true doesn't prove there are such things. Correct. Absolutely right. But it is a clue that something just may exist outside of space and time that is true and better, that is behind all of our greatest wishes and hopes and dreams. The last clue I'll go over with you today is the moral law clue. Romans 2 says that every human being has this law written on our hearts. Here's how the argument goes. Number one, all men are conscious of an objective moral law. Moral laws imply a moral lawgiver. Therefore, there must be a supreme moral lawgiver. In other words, if there is something, anything in the world that is always wrong or always right, then that leads us to believe that the law is not merely something that we just subjectively choose on our own or maybe even in groups. But there's something deeper. There's something deeper going on. Um, let me ask a few test questions here. Uh, though sinful, or, or excuse me, uh, is killing babies for fun, for fun, always wrong? Uh, is, is it fundamentally moral for all persons to have rights? Is genocide always wrong? If one says so, they are showing that there is some standard above them, a universal right and wrong that exists subjectively outside of them. Though sinful, humanity still bears the image of God and displays it when they think in terms of right and wrong. If everything were just random, as in a universe that isn't created by God, then truly there really would be no, no basis for a right and wrong. Right and wrong would just be established by majority rule, by mob rule. Thus Hitler, who was voted in by the majority, could not be deemed evil or wrong inherently for what he did. At best, all we could say is, I personally think he's wrong, or our country thinks he's wrong, but who am I to make moral judgments since everyone does things their own way? We all know better. We all know better. 
The moral law argument, perhaps more than any other, shows that people actually know there is something beyond. They might not know what to call that thing beyond, but they have a sense that there is something beyond. There's some knowledge of him hidden deep in the recesses of our hearts. Now, of course, the objection could be, well, each culture makes up its definition of right and wrong. And to some extent, there is some truth about tertiary issues, about secondary issues, but there are also things that just universally cultures have agreed upon. Murder, rape, theft, lying, pretty much all been deemed wrong everywhere. Why, how do we account for that? Now, this does not mean that all men act on these moral principles, just that they know deep down that it's not right when they don't. So those are five clues that suggest that it's at least rational to believe in a God. Again, I'm not here today making the case for the Christian God. I'm just making the case that theism, the belief in a God, is at least rational, that there's good reasons for it. There's good clues. Again, there's, just to review real quick, the creation clue or the cosmological argument, the, the design clue, the teleological argument, the beauty clue, the glue clue, and finally, the moral law clue. So uh, hopefully that's a good discussion starter and gets you thinking about um, ways that we can at least defend what we believe. And um, I think I think that's about it for today. So uh, have a good Friday. I'll see you uh, this weekend at church, whether in person.